I feel good. Dad, are you singing to your cereal? Come on, Ava. Silk almond milk. Starts the morning on a high note. <laughs> Silk almond milk. With calcium, vitamins A, D, and E. Feel plenty good. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes. It's episode four, it's the future of the state. I am John Richardson, and I am joined, thank the government and anyone you choose to, I am joined by Ed Gillespie. Vida Zane. And Mark Stevenson. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) So Ed's kept up his end of the multilingual bargain. Yeah. That's a phrase, isn't it? That gives you some glimpse into the state of where I'm at at the moment, my inability to finish a sentence. Still ahead of the Prime Minister, but not far ahead, given that he had notes in front of him. Uh, what was that noise, Mark? That was well, a new one. Yeah, that's uh, that's hello in um, in, in, in Wiedelvort. Oh, is it? Yeah. How are you? I'm fucked. I'm totally fucked. How are you? Um <laughs> Yeah, I'm all right. I, I'm not. I, I, I wouldn't say I was fucked. I'm sort of uh, titillated. I would say I'm, oh. in, I'm in the four. I'm in the foreplay area. Uh, fairly, it's the the usual. Um, not lit. Not a literal car crash. Um, but certainly a metaphorical one. Oh well, this is going to be a good show, then, isn't it? Perhaps, perhaps we should scrap this episode and do an episode of the podcast on us. So yeah. let's start with our question: uh, How fucked are we? We've done that. Um, let's go around the table and talk about why we're fucked. Um, Mark, why are you fucked? Um, well, I just um, <laughs> I just did uh, four countries in five days on two continents, and then came home and had to move house because um, where I'm living is being rewired. So um, yeah, I'm, I, I don't know what time zone I'm on, and uh, and I don't know where I'm sleeping. I flew to Lake Tahoe on a Saturday. I had to be in Geneva on a Monday. I had to come back to London for a meeting on. Wednesday, and I had to get on the Eurostar and go and do a TV show in France on Thursday, and then I had to come home. So I was quite, quite. Uh, by the end of it, I was like, didn't know where I was. I mean, our listeners will be saying you're one of those cop, cop people who's flying everywhere. Mm. Um, he is. Ironically, the gig I had to do in Lake Tahoe was about sustainable aviation. So this is fascinating. Talk to me about because uh, you know there's clearly a justification, but talk to me about w- what you do to make sure that flying to do a gig about sustainable aviation has its minimal impact? Well, I I think everyone will want to know. It's a really good question. So um, I think we've mentioned this on the show before that I've tried to um, remove all of the emissions I've ever emitted as a human being and indeed for all my family. Um, And that's actually quite difficult and complicated to do. So I'm actually in the process of setting up a company that will make it easy for people to do that. Um, uh, with my great friend, Dr. Gabriel Walker. So not only have I removed all my carbon emissions, I'm trying to build a company that will make it easy for everybody else to do so. So there. Good. Um, and then <laughs> in terms of the third question of the podcast, how do we unfuck you? 
presumably <laughs> just leave you alone for a bit. Just stay still. Don't fly anywhere. Stay in the same time zone. Put on some prog. It, you know what? Just being with you guys is enough. Oh, God, it's that serious. <laughs> um, if, if we're the solution, then the problem is big. Ed, um, why are you? Why are you fucked? Uh, well, I mean, not dissimilar. I, mean, I haven't been quite pinging around the place as much as Mark, but uh, I did go to to Norway to do a gig that was a sort of hangover from last year. A kind of one of those events that had been rearranged several times, and then uh, it was supposed to be like a fifteen hundred seat arena, uh, and this big sort of uh, it was billed as the Edutainment Tonight Show with Ed Gillespie, um, except we only had fifteen people in the audience. <laughs> and the, uh, the organiser said to me, she goes, uh, you know, a very, a very polite Norwegian way goes, we can cancel if you want, Ed, and I was like no, i've come all this way we're gonna do it and uh and actually it was amazing i mean the 15 people in the crowd were very enthusiastic and i, I got up on stage and i said jesus you guys take social distancing a bit too seriously <laughs> john surely this is the, i mean ed you can tell john all about how his next tour is going to be surely yeah. <laughs> it feels great Ed, how do we unfuck you i don't know i mean organizing my diary better because I, I also turned up to a gig also turned up to a gig a week early uh, <laughs> so I put my daughter to bed. Um, you know, left her in the care of my aunt. Uh, drove three and a half hours to uh, a kind of soulless hotel somewhere in Oxfordshire, uh, only to arrive. And the guy at reception went, uh, "Your booking's for next week, Mister Gillespie." And I was like, <laughs> "Oh God!" So yeah, had a night in the hotel and drove back again the following morning. I got to do the same thing again this week. Did you? Uh, did you at least have a lie in? No, I couldn't sleep. I was so sort of agitated because it was the last thing I needed was a seven-hour round trip, which mm-hmm. was totally pointless. Mm. I guess that's how people feel when they travel to see John perform. <laughs> this is big. He's really, he's really putting the boot in, isn't he? He's like, no. absolutely You're lashing out because you're tired. I know, I am. I am. But really, what I'm trying to do is create a link to ask you, John, how fucked are you? Well, uh, compared to you two, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, are you sure I've had I've had similar travel stuff. You know, like Friday I was in London, and then like Saturday I was in Bridlington, and uh, <laughs> then Sunday I was back at home again. You know, so it's been like crazy. <laughs> I think I think it must be a national mood because this is the week of the the Boris Johnson CBI clip where he oh. can't string a sentence together. I went to leave my house today, car keys in hand, open the front door, and there's a woman there. And she said, oh, I'm here for the photo shoot. And there was a photographer and there was makeup artist and a director and a whole group of people. I completely forgotten I told them they could come around to my house. And that, that led to a very tense afternoon. Once you've acknowledged that you'd forgotten people were coming to your house, they feel very awkward being there. Mm. I'll say that. Um, yeah. Does that ever happen with Lucy? <laughs> yeah, very much so. Very much so. But, you know, I think I'm probably the best of the three of us, which means I should probably uh, crack on and uh, host the podcast, should I? Mm. Yeah, I guess. Shortly, you will hear from the wonderful James Plunkett, uh, who we interviewed in another space and time when we were all a little bit more competent, let, let's be honest. Mm. Um but first, let's let's reach into the mailbag. Your, your emails continue to come in. Every time I log into the email, I'm amazed by you two and your replies. Because every time I ask you at the start of the podcast how you're doing, you all say, oh, I'm tired. I was in Sydney, and I had to dig a tunnel under the earth to get to Norway by 4 o'clock to give a speech. And then I check <laughs> the email. And you reply to everyone, and you're really nice, even people that criticize the podcast. We don't, we don't reply to everyone. 
you pretty much do, I have to say. And you I don't. You can't say that because all the people listening know that Neil Gunner didn't reply to me the fuck. All right, or I'll word it so it's less tense. You reply to the people you like. No, 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 actually, no, 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 I mean, you make a point, actually, of trying to reply to the ones who've got like a, a, a niggle or a criticism, because actually that's a really important challenge. And actually, sometimes it's worth engagement and saying thank you. And sometimes it's saying, oh, well, the reason we did that was because. Yes, I particularly enjoyed your exchange with Jake, Mark, who emailed yeah. to, to say that he enjoyed the podcast. And, and you know, if you're looking for a glossary of terms to stick on a, a review on, on wherever you get your podcasts, Jake described it as thoughtful, profound, sobering, hilarious and downright important. So, you know, mm. th- those are words you could stick on a review. He then went on to say, once he'd sort of kissed us and got us all ready, taken us out for a nice dinner, he then said, uh, I was surprised that you chose to in- interview a secular person about religion. Um, and that, that that sort of meant we didn't really engage with a conversation about spirituality and what people gain from religion. And Mark, you sent him a, a wonderfully erudite and considered defense of exactly why we did that and so that we didn't get pulled in one direction by someone who was affiliated with a certain religion and that a a, a more secular view could allow us to discuss the system of religion and that's what this podcast specializes in so good on you i would have told him to sod off (laughs) (laughs) do you know why we did that mate because we fucking book this podcast ourselves and that's who we wanted on so yeah. shove it that's what i would have put and that's yeah. why you're better dealing with the emails yeah and that's that's probably why we're on the show i'm guessing really because <laughs> the, so, yeah. the john richardson systems systems change <laughs> podcast would be like oh, i can't really be bothered with fucking systems oh shut up leave yeah, me it, alone put it this way the last gig i handled the pr for was ed's gig in norway so, uh, <laughs> but genuinely uh Thank you for all your emails. Ed, have you, is there anything that's that's leapt out at you? I, I particularly like the one from uh, Nicholas Dixon, um, who shared the reimagination or the reinvention of the testicuzzi, mm. uh, which might be a not-so-pointless future, where um, this designer has basically won a James Dyson Award for engineering um, for, like, applying the kind of the principles of the testicuzzi for contraception so uh before we before we go any further i do think that we assume that everybody's listened to the 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 series finale of series one Mm. where 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 john dumps his junk in a bubble bath for such such an unpoetic description (laughs) of what i did to dump my junk i think i think i sort of suspended my uh you lowered your testicles into a warm bath yeah uh, bubbles into some water sure at base level sure yeah. anyway so she's redesigned <laughs> it uh basically uh, to run at a slightly higher temperature and with combined ultrasound which then uh, interferes with the process of sp- spermatogenesis mm-hmm. uh which means it could be an effective male contraception device which you could use in the comfort of your own home very um, much like genesis the band yeah, <laughs> just, actual, just actual Genesis is a massive contraceptive because nobody will sleep sleep with you if you listen to it. Well, it's called the Cozo, but then when I googled it, I, I put in Cozo. You know how Google tries to anticipate what you're searching for, and it and it brought up Cozo air fryer, which I thought was a, a very high risk kind of mistake you might not want to make. <laughs> so let's get let's get on with uh, th- this week's uh, topic and interview, which is an interview with James Plunkett, and it and it came off the back of reading his work, which which we all did. The book is called End State: Nine Ways Society's Broken and How to Fix It. And it, immediately upon reading it, it really speaks to what this podcast is all about. So we felt we had to get him on, didn't we, gents? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm a, I'm a little bit conflicted about getting him on because I think he's probably better than me and Ed put together. 
So um, it may be this could be our last our last show with you, John, and you just you replace us with James. He wouldn't have me. he wouldn't have me let's be honest so congratulations on making it this far your reward is a wonderful interview with a wonderful guest and uh well done for wading through a podcast where the three hosts start off by saying how tired they are and incapable of doing their jobs properly and then interview the guest by saying he's frankly annoying here he is the wonderful james blunkett well let me tell you dear listener that is not very often that I read a book as good as the one. Are you finished? Oh. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Too busy writing him, eh, mate? Fucking yeah. hell. <laughs> Can't even get an intro in without you fucking ragging on me. Jesus Christ. <laughs> right. So it is, my, it is my enormous pleasure to introduce uh, a man called James Plunkett, who uh, should be a household name. He's not, but obviously Bender's podcast probably will become so. Because when I finish work, the last thing I want to do is read a book about systems change, because that's the day job. You know, I want to listen to prog rock, and I want to drink red wine. And the last thing I want to do is read a book with a title like End State, Nine Ways Society is Broken and How We Fix It. However, I opened up the first page of this book, and it instantly grabbed me. And the man who wrote it, who we're going to interview now, is James Plunkett. And not only is he a demon writer and a very generous one as well, um, he's basically been at the forefront of public policy forever. He's worked at Downing Street. He's worked for lots of think tanks. He's ba- yeah, I mean, you'll tell us all about it, I'm sure. But um, you, you seem to like know everything about everything. That's what I love about you, James. You kind of started off this book going, oh, yeah, I'm going to talk about cholera and what happened with cholera and then the origins of cholera and then the origins of, of, of sewers and then I'm going to relate that to modern-day policy. And, I'm going to, and, and honestly, it's an absolute tour de force, this book, and all the ideas in it were so good that we thought, he sounds a lot smarter than me and Ed. We should get him on, and then hopefully we can just leave the whole podcast and just leave you and you and John to it. So, uh, so yeah, this is, this is James Plunkett, the, the wonderful, the extraordinary mind that knows how to fix society. And that's all we've got time for this week, folks. <laughs> uh, who wants to come on? Who, who wants to ask the first question? I'll go. Well, it, it's it's a question we would usually ask at the end because the, the structure of this podcast we usually just how bad things are, why it's that way, um, and how we fix it. And you you start the book with what we would class the end. The the, the opening to your book is is optimistic by dint of talking about how bad things are, and you talk about. This sort of it is a very human arrogance to believe that you know only we have lived through awful times, and actually it happens repeatedly, and that when you are in times of great strife, that's when the big changes happen. So I, I guess I would ask first and foremost: is that something you've come to through learning and reading? Is that something you make a special effort to do? Because what I enjoy about w- working with Mark and Ed is that. I asked them on one of our first shows, you know, are you just naturally optimistic people? Is that something you count yourself fortunate to be? And they both said, well, no, that's something you you work at and you have Mm -hmm. to make a decision to believe that we're going to make things better together. So would you agree with that? Or are you optimistic? Or have you just through reading come to believe, well, actually, there are solutions out there and we're going to we're going to solve things together? Yeah, I, I think it took me by surprise a bit, actually, because I, I didn't <laughs> expect it to be an optimistic book when I started out. Um, and I remember getting very intrigued by this question of have things been this crap before? <laughs> um, and I um, I remember the kind of first the book I read that really got me into the um, Industrial Revolution and that, that period of history. And I just had this amazing sense of um, 
that feels just un, uh, eerily similar to the situation now, to the sort of mood, you know, the kind of public mood and this sense of um, problems piling up, unsolved, this kind of public sense that things are spinning out of control. And I started that, strangely enough, that made me optimistic because I started to think, yeah, we've been through this before. I'm sure we'll come on to this. But then, then I started to read about how we got out of this problem before. Um, and I surprised myself, to be honest, by sort of thinking, actually, you know, we've, we've done this before. We can do it again. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't set out that way, but that's how I ended up. And J- James, you said like the, when we were having our little pre-brief chat earlier, um, you described a sort of a- epiphany moment for your good self when you were in number 10, where Gordon Brown was sitting down with Tim Berners-Lee and you realised that actually the kind of the, the essence of your book um, was perhaps seeded at that moment, wasn't it? When you had this, saw this kind of two worlds colliding or and a huge gulf opening up in between them. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I had this, I mean, it was one of those classic sort of number 10 moments in the sense that it was completely disorganised. Um, and I, so I was called into this meeting at the last minute, not quite knowing what it was even about. And it um, sort of walked down, it was in the garden, weirdly. So we sat on these wicker chairs. It was all incredibly awkward. And it was Gordon Brown and Tim Berners-Lee and... Um, and the guy who's credited with inventing the internet. Um, Got a play up there. there, James. He invented the web, not the internet. The, the internet web was invented in 1968. We've got to get some well. points in on this one because you're going to dominate How this quickly they show. turn from the man who knows everything. <laughs> that gushing introduction and then not two minutes later. Just pick you up on one thing, mate. How's the cards? How's the cards? Um, so, um, yeah, and we sat there and it was, it was like a, we were talking about something a bit tedious about um, opening up government data or something like that. But the... Um, the thing that stuck with me was this this just complete clash between the two in terms of their styles. So, and you've probably seen Tim Berners Lee when he talks. He's got a particular way of talking, um, and he talks in this slightly odd language of sort of networks and platforms. And uh, whereas Gordon Brown, of course, is kind of talks like the twentieth century state. You know, he's kind of the big clunking fist of government. I remember him saying at one point, um, uh, "Tim, how do we beat the Americans on this agenda?" And I, just, I was just—I just left with this feeling of real unease that there was mm. this kind of fundamental disconnect. And I didn't—I didn't really realize at the time, but I think in hindsight, what I'd seen was the sort of 21st century economy, you know, epitomized by the Tim Berners-Lee way of thinking, meeting this this 20th, 20th century state epitomized by Brown. So that's that's where the idea of the book came from. And that sense of unease that you just mentioned. Uh, James is 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 really critical isn't it because that's kind of why we're so fucked at the moment isn't it because we can't quite put our finger on on what seems to be going wrong you know and I think your book does a great explanation and exploration of that because you know if you think back you know you mentioned your reading about the industrial revolution and obviously it was quite clear then when there was sort of filth piling up and pollution and kids getting their arms ripped off in in machine looms and horrendous working conditions that all felt very tangible but now our sense of unease feels a bit more below the radar a bit more disparate doesn't it it's like you know we're talking about mental illness and burnout and the breakdown of trust and truth and that's much more nebulous yeah yeah completely and i mean it was as you say it was a very tangible revolution you know i talk about the um the sewage literally piling up on the banks of the thames the railway tracks that didn't line up as you say child laborers and um, being wounded by the, by the machines and yeah, now now we're talking about mental mental ill health, burnout. Talking about these digital platforms that kind of make us all feel queasy when we sort of sign up and give away all our data, but we can't quite put our finger on what's you know what what makes us feel so kind of nervous about that. And as you say, the kind of fallout of 
that earlier revolution was much more tangible and much more sort of um, made people vis- visibly angry and led to kind of violent revolution in some cases. And this time it's it's spreading this sense of unease and it's um, a much kind of more um, hard to place kind of feeling. I think, I think one of the things ab- about your your book that I found so refreshing was that it kind of was able to articulate some of that uncertainty and unease in a way that I'd not seen done so eloquently elsewhere and this idea of almost like this digital pollution that's now piling up and we're still but we're still trying to deal with it with these 20th century sort of norms of democracy or policy or whatever and that's you know in a way it kind of adds this layer of understanding to the work that Ed and I do because, you know, if we're going to talk about, you know, how fucked are we, you know, this entire podcast wouldn't exist, I keep saying, without the world being largely completely fucked. So, so there are some silver linings, you know, we get to do this every week, which is nice. World's falling apart, but, you know, swings and roundabouts. Uh, but, you know, we've got democracy that doesn't democratise very well. We've got these, you know, digital monopolies we don't know what to do with. 85% of employees are disengaged from their work. We've got climate change. We've got these sick care systems, not really healthcare systems. But one of the things that, that, that you hit upon that I hadn't really clocked, which I thought was fascinating, was kind of this splitting of jobs, which I think was really kind of that. I talked to a lot of the unease. Can you talk about that? How are the jobs, you know, you said that the... The jobs have kind of split into two types and there's nothing in the middle. And I want you to talk about it because I think you do it far more eloquently than I would. It's one of the big things that's changed economically, I think, and it explains a lot of the sort of vibe, um, the sense the economy is not working for people. That um, If you go back to certainly the sort of 50s and 60s and look at the types of jobs that were being created at the time, um, you saw this um, a sort of a lot of middle class jobs, essentially, middle, middle skill jobs, decent jobs being created when the economy was growing. And what you've seen in the last 20 years, it's something that, that economists call it uh, polarisation. So you see you see job growth split and we're still seeing some jobs created at the top. So really highly paid jobs, you know, coding, UX design and so on, massive, massive salaries. Um, but then huge numbers of jobs created at the bottom. So uh, caring professions, uh, warehouse jobs, they call them last mile jobs sometimes. So working with working with technologies, kind of picking up after the robot drops the parcel in the warehouse, but but far fewer jobs being created in the middle. It's just a fundamental change that that, that government suddenly has to has to worry about the quality of jobs. Um, that doesn't take care of itself, if you like, in a way it, it did in the past. And I think one of the things that, that I thought was fascinating about this is that, like there's no route out. You know, you did you, you, this really eloquent sense about the difference say, between an Uber coder, somebody who's coding the the, the, the system. And, and an Uber driver, and actually the, the the chance of an Uber driver having any kind of you know route out via some other jobs and some training, or whatever, to improve their lot rather than you know driving around for for minimum wage, that that pathway seems to have been torn out from, from yeah, this generation. Sort of, there's like mi- miss, missing rungs on the ladder, right? So you think that the old um, the classic sort of workplace of the 50s or 60s, a kind of office space, you know, at least in theory, you could work your way up from being a, an administrator and then you become a manager and work your way up and you worked at least alongside your colleagues that were paid a bit more than you as you say if you're an uber driver how do you work your way up to be a coder at uber there's just missing rungs on that ladder you don't have the skills you don't have the capital connections so um and that's just a profound change from from how things used to be Mm. and we live in this world don't we of of variants you know we're enjoying the delta variant wave Uh, but you describe that sort of form of digital capitalism as a sort of the digital variant of the system that has sort of started to take hold. Yeah. Now, how, how has that rise been so meteoric? How has that taken place? How has that gap opened up between 
you know, where the the digital giants and technology companies are, and and with the state sort of limping along, slightly hobbled behind. I think. I mean, I think what you see at these times is you get this um, it, a kind of new type of economy emerges, and because it is just it's, it's fundamentally more profitable than the old one, right? So that so that's why it kind of spreads like wildfire. So um, company like Amazon. You know, it goes from nowhere to suddenly being a two trillion pound, um, two trillion dollar company, and you had that. If you remember that uneasy moment when Bezos returned from his trip to space, and he said, um, "Thanks everyone, you paid for this ticket. Um, thanks to my workers and my customers, you paid for this flight." And there was a sort of a queasy laugh in the audience at how true that was, because of course his workers uh, and and all of us as consumers had paid for him to have this expensive kind of spacefaring hobby. And it's that kind of, that, I mean, talk about polarization, you know, exemplified in that, in that one comment, the kind of, mm. you know, the billionaire at the top. I like to call it edge of space dick waving. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and I mean, just like another, what another contrast, you know, the kind of previous space race was funded by NASA and, and governments. Um, and this space race is funded by billionaires. You know? I think that's, that's at the heart of what I took from your book is that it is such a stark, reminder that we have shifted fundamentally that the way that we earn money and the jobs that we have have shifted and i i haven't heard anyone certainly in government make that point so clear look we have to embrace the fact that things are different now jobs are different the way we buy things is different and we're going to need a brand new set Mm. of rules and systems why do you think that is that it feels like when you read your book, it's so clear. You just think, oh, well, of course. You hear about, you know, and you talk about Amazon and companies like that, and your, your solution to that is interesting because we as, I think, consumers hear about breaking these companies down and challenging monopolies, and your solution is a bit more sophisticated. It's about embracing those companies as they are but getting to the heart of our data as something that should be held by the public and accessible by people who want to challenge those monopolies rather than inherently smashing those big companies apart. Yeah, exactly. I think, I mean, I say, um, you know, don't, don't break them up, open them up because, you know, they're in, in some ways they're kind of pretty amazing creations, these companies, but what they should be is collective. They should be sort of doing harness for good rather than kind of pumping money into the pockets of Jeff Bezos and, and others. But um, I think there's just quite a lot of denial in um, government. And you see, you see this in the industrial revolution that, um, for decades at a time, people pretend that the old policies can still work. And even, you know, like the classic is the, um, the, the sewage, you know, sewage building up on the banks of the Thames. And when people proposed the idea of public sewers as a solution to that problem, people said it was, it was kind of radicalism, it was unaffordable, it was an act of government overreach <laughs> because it had never been done before. So it was seen as this kind of unprecedented um, and slightly zany idea. And of course, as soon as there were public sewers, people said, oh, this has always been it's a very sensible idea and people forgot it had ever been thought impossible but um people people struggle to make that mental leap i think to realize that that's going to happen again that's going to you know we just assume the current set of policies has always been there and we've always said they should be there but i mean this case. this reminds me kind of a, of a quote by one of my go-to thinkers carl sagan where you know he in his very last interview actually before he died um he said if the general public doesn't understand science and technology then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that are going to determine what kind of future our children live in members of congress there are only a handful of any background in science at all and some of them don't even want to know about it so it seems to me that you know he was saying we've got a, a, a policy making body that doesn't understand what's going on in the economy and therefore, you know, it takes, I think it's somewhere in your book, it said it took about 60 years, really, for, for them to sort of catch up 
with the Industrial Revolution. And is that what's happening now? We've just got to wait. Was it that Max Planck said some science advances one funeral at a time? Does policy have to have enough funerals such that we get a new generation of policymakers and politicians who actually grew up in the age that they're trying to legislate for? Yeah, I mean, I always like you could say politics advances one retirement at a time, you know, kind of all the civil service. Um, but um, yeah, that, and that example is the gauge wars. So that this kind of great, great thing that happened in um, the railway boom, where the two main engineers disagreed on how far apart you should lay the tracks. So um, <laughs> George, George Stevenson thought they should be close together, and um, Brunel thought they should be far apart in a wide gauge, as it was called. And they couldn't agree, and so they both just set about laying tracks at that gauge, and. Um, of course, wherever these tracks met each other, they didn't join up. And so um, you had these things <laughs> called gauge breaks where people literally had to get off of one train onto another train and get all the cargo off one train, put it on another train, only because the government hadn't decided on a single gauge. Um, and it took 60 years for the government to accept that this kind of radical idea of um, essentially regulating the, the railways was needed. That still happens in some parts of the world, though. I've been when yeah. I when I did my trip around the world on the, like taking the train from Mongolia into China, they had to change they right. had to change the bogies on the train. You get lifted up in a in a big shed, and they put new wheels on for the the next set of track. Yeah, no, and luckily they they did that here. So um, after they just finally decided on the standard gauge, they moved all the wide gauge tracks slightly closer, so that all the tracks are standard gauge now. Well, most of them, at least. So, um, but as you say, it took sixty years, and how how blindingly obvious is it that that was needed? And yet, it took <laughs> it took that long for people to accept. So, it, you know, it took sixty years for for them to do that. It took them, you know, forever to do the public sewers, and that, you know, literally was the result, pretty much of the of the big stink, as they called it, in the, the mid nineteenth century, where. <laughs> policymakers and politicians that literally had to run from the house. You do this little great book in your book. Where you talk about literally for putting their hankies over their mouths because they're all about to throw up because the stink had got that bad. And, and you know, and yet it's so blindingly obvious that we need things like sewers and trains that run on the same. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get massively frustrated? Because obviously you've worked in number 10, you've worked in other places. Do you sometimes go home and just kind of scream into a pillow going, oh, for fuck's sake, can't these people see what needs to be done? Um, I think, I don't know. I think the, the thing, I, I used to, I think, is the, is the answer. I think I, for some reason I found reading the history made me a bit more zen about the whole thing because um, you sort of start to be confident that in the long run, you know, you'll win, you'll win in the long run. Um, and it, it might be quite a long might be quite long, the long run, but um, but you'll get there in the end. And I start, that, that's quite, I don't know, that's quite empowering. That's quite an empowering thought. Um, I mean, it doesn't mean you can sit back. That's really important. So I think it's not one of those sort of techno utopian books that says you can just relax and everything will solve itself. You know, we have to fight. That's how you win is you fight and you argue and you persuade people and you show that these problems can't stand. But um, But you get there in the end and that's quite... Nice, actually. That's quite an empowering thought, I think. You, you talk about the importance in the book on this of when websites discovered that they could randomly generate a, a time ticking time bomb that says if you don't book these tickets within 18 minutes, they'll go. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're talking about that now, and I know you, you don't really discuss climate on its own in the book, but you say, obviously, everything is part of building a better system that will, in, in turn, make people's lives better and, and benefit the climate. We've got that now. We're constantly being told, you know, it has to be by 2030 carbon neutrality or we have to, you have to get to this day or we've got this many years left before the temperature goes at this degree. It doesn't seem to be having that effect of kickstarting that great cooperation of governments. Why do you think that is? 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm a bit split on this. I think I, I, I originally had a chapter in the book on these kind of global problems, the problems that require global co- cooperation. Um, and my editor said it was too miserable uh, as, a, <laughs> as a final chapter because it ends. I, the I book think that's the down. editor I had on my book. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to take it out. So, um, but um, having said that, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel more optimistic even on climate. I think um, it's fascinating how quickly the debate has shifted and how mm. now every time there's a storm or a wildfire or a flood people link it to climate climate change which is fascinating um and that wasn't happening even five years ago uh, and i think also things like the uptake of renewables if you look at some of the um electric cars for example and i think i don't know i think we're kind of ahead some of that stuff's happening quicker than people would have thought it, it was going to happen five or ten years ago so I think the kind of point is when things turn, they turn quickly. So mm-hmm. it take, takes a while, but when they go, they really go. Yeah, I was to say, for those of us who've been sort of grinding away on climate change for 25 years, it's like, yeah. yeah, it does require patience. My old mate, John Elkington, always used to say, he goes, it's hard to notice a paradigm shift when you're in the middle of one. Mm-hmm. Uh, because obviously the pace of change doesn't always go in a sort of linear fashion. And you and you talk about that as well in the book, don't you, James? Like the, the idea of these big paradigm shifts because one of the the problems isn't it that we get sort of locked in our existing paradigm and we can't make a a leap beyond that which means that when we discuss you know policy innovation and radical new policy ideas uh they get tainted by uh, like ideas around ideology and implementation don't they i mean you use a great phrase you sort of talk about the fact that we always discuss our solutions in a tiny walled off garden of debate well there's a you know a fantastically rich and diverse landscape that we just totally ignore on the other side of the wall yeah and i i think this is particularly the case with these new problems so if you take something like the gig economy for example and then the governments are looking at these uh, you know uber uberization they call it of the economy and and at the moment what's happening is governments look at those jobs and they think is this employment is it, are these are these examples of employment not really is it self-employment not really either but they sort of conclude they have to put it in one of those boxes and because they're trying to still apply the old tools and the answer is it's neither it's something new you know that's the you know, same with the big digital monopolies people look at them and say um these must be similar to the monopolies of the past but the reality is Amazon and Google and these monopolies are just a new thing. And so we just need new new legal frameworks, new institutions, new ways of dealing with them. Um, but naturally, government, you've got a toolkit. I mean, the metaphor I use is it's like they're, they're an electrician that's turned up to find a plumbing job. <laughs> and, they sort, and they look down at the toolkit and think, oh, okay. But then they have, a, have their best crack yeah. using the yeah. tools they've got. Yeah, switch it on anyway. Switch it on anyway. <laughs> turn it off and on again, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there is a cracking sentence in your book that really stuck with me, which is society didn't survive the shift to industrialism by tweaking medieval policy instruments. We didn't expand the guilds, freeze the charges for turnpikes and increase funding for Knights of the Garter. We did something more <laughs> radical than that. We replaced the old system with a new one. And it feels to me that at the moment, you know, we, we're our policy decisions at the moment are like, you know, well, let's increase funding for the Knights of the Garter. You know, that's kind of what's happening at the moment. So are you seeing, I mean, let's get on to the, the unfacking. Are we seeing, do you think, there's some of the innovations talk about, like, you know, um, principles-based rather than rules-based legislation. Are we seeing any of that sort of happening? I mean, because your, your book reads like this delicious menu of, you know, things that could be better. How much of it do you think is are we seeing at the moment how long will it be and you know where's your where's your sense of all that i think it's happening i think it's starting like it's begun kind of thing so 
because and I think um these ideas aren't mainstream yet but it was easy when I went through the book I wanted kind of you know big radical ideas and it wasn't hard to find them in a way that I think 10 or 20 years ago would have been so you take the four-day week for example you know universal basic income uh, some of these ideas about um, opening up the big tech platforms and, and making them open up their data. Some of these ideas around even democracy, there's this kind of radical idea, probably the most kind of out there idea I discuss in the book of um, giving parents an extra vote to cast on behalf of their children as a way of kind of tipping the balance towards future generations. But these ideas are out there. They're sort of, they're not mainstream yet, but they're, you know, once these ideas start sort of um, springing up, they're quite hard to stop. Because that suggests they've been they've putting they've been putting down roots for quite a long time now. Can we talk about a couple of specifics? I, I want to bring up one because a lot of our our listeners have kind of asked for us to talk about this, and we've been toying with the idea of doing a show on it. And one is this idea of universal basic income that you started off as I, as I understand as a bit of a skeptic about, and never come around to be sort of a cautious kind of advocate for. And particularly after COVID, because when you made this rather brilliant point, said, well, you know, if you look at furlough, or if actually if you look at the state pension that kind of already is a universal basic income in one in one sense or another we've kind of trialed it um so can you talk to us about why you think you know that as as now as because you're hearing about it a lot and now that becomes possibly a solution for our times yeah i think i I think this and i'm not quite there yet on it i'm not quite kind of fully paid up member but i've definitely shifted so um i would have said it was a mad idea about you know five five ten years ago but um you know, the basic model we've had on welfare is how do we build the, the most perfect, efficient welfare system we can so that it allocates money as efficiently as possible to low-income people? And what you end up with is this massively complicated sort of formula-based welfare system that no one understands, even people who are receiving welfare. Uh, that is completely stigmatizing because, um, you know, people who get welfare have to go through this kind of arduous process of proving they're deserving it's targeted, so because not everyone gets it, you feel quite you know, stigmatized. Whereas, take something like the NHS, you don't feel stigmatized when you use the NHS. It's a universal service, so it's complex. It's kind of it makes people feel crappy about about their lives. Um, it makes it hard to get on in life because as your income then goes up, your benefits are taken away, and so you have this really steep kind of climb out of poverty. And I think for all these reasons, this idea of a basic income, which is essentially about having a much simpler more universal system that actually strangely as you say similar to the state pension where you give people uh, money less with fewer conditions and a flatter way i think is quite attractive and it, and it also fits with these kind of new jobs that are emerging because the you know, one thing a, a complex benefit system doesn't work for is is the uber economy because if you're in, if your wages are going up and down all the time it's a nightmare working out what's going to happen to your benefits so in, in some ways, you need a simpler system to cope with this with this digital jobs market. And James, you talked about you talked about the importance of the history for changing your opinion and view on on some of these issues as well, and understanding that that's the root of some of your optimism. But I mean, I was really struck by the the, the notion of this sort of river of policy origins that you describe. You know, that it's sort of st- these ideas start as a trickle and they cascade downhill, and sometimes they disappear into subterranean caverns um and then they finally emerge into this sea of unspoken understanding but when you're talking about that welfare for example you know you you trace that in the book back to this idea of sort of economic efficiency that you know that goes back over a hundred years and that sort of permeates through so much of this sort of bureaucratic formula-based 
as you say, complex, hierarchical and technocratic type of thinking, doesn't it? And, and we, what we seem to want to need is something which is a bit, bit warmer, a bit softer, a bit hum- more humane. Yeah, absolutely. And this is you know, the origins of the government we have today is in exactly as you say, in that kind of te- technocratic is the word, right? So it's kind of very complex, essentially designed by economists, these sort of big hierarchical institutions like the NHS or the welfare state, which come from you know, decades old ideas about how you should run things and are completely different to how you know, the kind of modern technology companies are now run. So I do think we need to, to sort of reimagine the way that government works and I think the thing that gives me optimism is if you just look again and again at the way these ideas go from being uh, people thought they were impossible then you get these kind of new kind of some a few radicals start to believe in the ideas and then they gradually spread and then you see they're kind of more widely accepted and you see that happen with public sewers um, economic regulation um, free healthcare, welfare pensions people said all of those ideas were impossible unaffordable even the weekend was not the, wasn't the two-day weekend. <laughs> yeah uh, that's one of my favorite is people said the two-day weekend would, would bankrupt manufacturing in this country <laughs> um completely impossible and of course that's what everyone now says about the four-day week well that's an interesting question then isn't it as well about the role of utopianism because you know if we're bedded and stuck and mired in this sort of economic rationality then you know how do we get out of that economic paradigm to to think more ethically and more more visionary you know to uh, to actually start with the vision rather than the economic constraints mm. uh, and aim towards the kind of society we might want yeah and no, there's this great quote from Keynes about it's kind of very along very much along those lines where he says um if you're thinking about it's not quite this but it's something like this if you're thinking about the ideal future state of society you've got to start with the vision and not with the economics because you've got to start with what kind of society you want and then you work back from there to make the economics work um, and that was that was an economist speaking. So I, I, I do think this is one reason I, I made the book hopeful and optimistic is I think one of the big uh, risks is fatalism at mm. a time like this or the kind of a kind of um, you know, directionless anger that people feel and just sort of this kind of sense of just being pissed off, um, <laughs> which is not the most constructive kind of mood. And it's when you when you combine the pissed offness with a sense that things could be different. Um, there's that slightly cheesy phrase a better future is possible but it's it's a good it's, it's a good phrase in a way because it's when people start to see that something better is possible that i think things start to unlock yeah i wanted to ask you about the anger because i think one of the things you do exceptionally well in the book that perhaps is isn't clear when you, you we're drilling down into the systems and the things you suggest there's, there's a real um there's some really strong anecdotal stuff and there's some very emotive stuff. The, the, the chapter on healthcare and benefits is, is a hard read in some ways. You, know, you talk about people dying, waiting to have their benefits reassessed. You know, There is clearly in you that, that as I was reading it, that I, I could tell that comes from someone who's felt that anger, someone who is, although the book is very well put together in the sense that you clearly want it to be optimistic you can't write chapters like that without having inside you an anger and you say right at the beginning you know what we need going forward in society is people who care and but we do need your anger as well because we need people to drive that change so could you talk about that for a minute where you see me as a reader what 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 would you like me to do when i've finished reading the book yeah i think i i agree i mean it's as i say it's a combination of anger and hope and i definitely do feel that and it's the um it's the sort of anger of how did we end up here? How did we end mm. up doing this stuff? So the welfare system is, again, a great example where um, 
when you sit down and talk to people claiming benefits, that some, sometimes the kind of the things we put people through, mm. um, particularly disabled people trying to claim benefits and trying to claim the support they're entitled to going through a year or two of kind of you know, um, having to kind of jump through hoops to, to claim that to get those benefits. Or, or I talk in the healthcare chapter about my nan who um, passed away a few years ago. And, and I remember really well when she was um, in the kind of final weeks of her life and um, in a lot of pain. And we said to the nurse, can she have some pain medication? And the nurse said it would be bad for her health. Um, <laughs> and so, and she, you know, she was a caring, loving nurse that was doing her best in that situation. But the kind of the system said, no, it's bad for her health. And it, and this system designed to keep her alive as long as we possibly can. And you kind of thought, how, how have we got there? How have we landed in that mm-hmm. situation? So I think you need that anger, but I think it's kind of um, it's kind of coupling the anger with with the hope and not letting the anger become fatalism. But there's something else in your book which I found fantastic, which is you, you couple the anger with the hope, but also you explain the roots of that. Mm. So if you go back mm. to, for instance, why is our healthcare system set up like that? It's because it was never designed to deal with people living as long as they are with perhaps chronic conditions. It was like you come in, we fix you, we get rid, of, you know, you go out the door. It was it was designed as a fix you quickly you know that that was its initial so it doesn't know how to deal now with people who are living with say cancer or chronic conditions for a long time therefore it's the whole bureaucracy of it was set up for a totally different situation and what what i love about that is that you have that anger why is it like this why is it and and part of you just wants to kind of blame people go as stupid politicians or policymakers or it's all you know and, and you go actually it's from the very, very fundamental assumption the design of it, and and that's kind of got now no no longer in step with where we are, and it's kind of got bent out of shape. So so your anger now becomes like, oh, I can direct that to something better, which is building a better system, rather than being angry at everybody in the existing one. Yeah, I, I, maybe this is an un, um, this is not a, not a very trendy point, but I think kind of assuming good intentions is quite important, and um, you know, a lot most of these systems, I don't know, arguably, arguably most of these systems are not crappy because. There's some evil bastard at the top of them, but you know that the healthcare system is a perfect, perfect example. You know, like millions of incredibly passionate professionals working in that system, doing huge good. But as you say, when it comes to certain particular problems like the end of life and how we treat people, um, aging, chronic health conditions, mental health, the system wasn't designed for that. And it, it, you know, the system was designed for a world, and it emerged from a world when life expectancy was about 35 or 40. People were dying of cholera. Uh, across London, communicable diseases were the, were the big problem. People were dying young. And so, of course, we built a system to keep people alive as long as we possibly could. And of course, that system doesn't work very well for completely different conditions like mental health and mental illness or chronic conditions. So it's not that there's some sort of evil plot here. It's that the systems are totally out of date. And so, you know, updating them is is basically the answer. But is that, is that also about the sort of managerialism of politics, James, do you think? Like, mm. you know, where... There, we don't have the radicalism, so you don't get that step change. You don't get that embracing of a potential paradigm shift. We're sort of stuck in the best ways of working with the systems that currently exist. Uh, and, and few politicians are really prepared to stick their neck out and say, hang on, it's time to try something a little bit more risky and ambitious so we don't even know how we might pay for. Yeah, yeah, and there's, and there's a long lead time. There's a sort of like turning the tanker thing going on because um, – but once those ideas are kind of once once those old ideas have caught on it and they just kind of keep running um, and ideas like that get are very sticky. All these ideas are really sticky. But I, I also think that's why I'm optimistic, because you know, these new ideas that are emerging have got a certain momentum behind them. Um, 
So it will be quite hard for the forces that be to slow them down. You know, there's that other, that other Keynes quote about um, the power of a, a good idea is always stronger than the power of vested interests or something like that. It's <laughs> not quite that. But, um, and so over the long run, it's incredibly hard to hold back a good idea even in the face of vested interest. It's the Victor Hugo quote as well, isn't it? You know, it's nothing so powerful as an, as an idea whose time has come. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think you see that with a four-day week, those kind of ideas. They've just got a certain inevitable momentum to them. I mean, yeah. And look at John. I mean, John hardly works at all, and he's done very well. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about work then, because I'm fascinated by your, your history, obviously, as we sort of discussed in the introduction, you've worked in government and out of government. And, and looking forward and all the, all the suggestions you make in this book and the possible solutions – where would you we get a lot of emails from younger listeners who are doing degrees or or retraining and and they're asking they're they're pleading sometimes we really want to help and i want to be part of the solutions to a lot of the problems we face in society where where should i be looking what do you think the answer to that is because obviously you've been in government and and you've faced the frustrations that have you you've worked you work now in in digital tech you talk about the facebook considers itself more of a government than a than a website where do you think you should head if you really want to be, if you read the book and you think, right, I know these solutions, where am I going to go to implement them? I, I think I say in the book, there's a lot of, I sort of talk about this, this ragtag army of people that can fight for these changes. And um, I say it's the kind of ragtag army because it's quite loose knit. Um, and there's a lot of roles available. So I don't think there's one answer. So um, like some good answers, I would say. So um there's loads of brilliant people working in government and it's um, not as boring as it sounds <laughs> and um, particularly working in, in digital, in tech, in government, trying to kind of reimagine government for, for the internet era. I think it's fascinating work. I think protest, I think kind of, you know, campaigners, there's an important role to play. Even arguably, I think you see the role that kind of progressive businesses, ge- genuinely progressive businesses play at times like this. So, um, you know, two day weekend, was famously pushed by big companies like Ford, and that helped to tip the balance. So I think if you pick your company carefully, and you have to kind of you know work out who really means it and who doesn't, but if you pick your company carefully, you can even have quite a big effect by working um, working in the private sector as well. And is there any point to comedians? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a, it, you don't. I think it's in, in all seriousness, there's a kind of a role for artists in general and for. And for comedy, and I think helping people kind of, um, in a way, I tried to make the book a bit funny, which hopefully the book is kind of a bit comedic in places, because I think taking all this too seriously um, is not not particularly motivating either. So I think there is. I think there is. Thanks, mate. I love the way way you said, I think there is, but you didn't actually have any particular advice as to where (laughs) where, where that might be. Career change. Artists in general. Yeah. I'll take that. I'll I'll start to consider myself an artist. Artist. I'll have a word with Lucy. I think she would disagree. Well, I don't know. She's definitely called you a type of artist in the past. She has. Yeah. You've been listening in. UBI, Universal Basic Idiot. Yeah. So, what's the what's the best and worst feedback you've had on the book in terms of reviews, James? You know, we're sort of, we've been laying on the plaudits here about how much we love it and how provocative it was to our thinking. But what have others said? I had, um, yeah, it's a good question. I had a couple of um, negatives. So, I had um, the basic income that always makes people angry. So, I had a few mm. people say, um, someone said this is the kind of a plot, uh, some something like the last plot by the neoliberal right to try and con the con the left into. Um, accepting a flatter benefit system 
that was good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, had, um, I had a good interview with Michael Portillo. He said, are you embarrassed for writing this book? Because it's um, uh, so horrible. It's old-fashioned to be recommending government as a solution to everything. That was... Um, I thought that was quite biting. Wow. Yeah. Was he being provocative? He was, he was yeah. I said yeah. I'm not remotely embarrassed, but... You know, yeah. I think it's far better to leave it to Bezos and Zuckerberg, you know. I think, yeah. you know, who needs government when we've got their kind of, you know, unselfish, you know, unself-interested, uh, you know, they've got all of our best existence in mind. Exactly. Leave it. Leave them to it. Wind the government down. I don't think you argued that. And one, there's another brilliant bit in the book that really stuck with me where you said, like, you know, if you think about it, Uber is literally the best way we've ever invented to create a taxi system. I mean, it's, you know, as an experience, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, what we have is just a badly governed Uber. Yeah. You know, so it's not that Uber's a bad thing in, in, as an idea. It's a great thing as an idea, yeah. but it's badly governed. So you're not you're not arguing for the state to step in and do everything. You're if the state to work in partnership with the with the new economy. Yeah, and I think I, to be honest, I'm having a pop at folk on the left as much as anything else. I, I do think mm. um, there's a tendency to sort of say, you know, Uber's Uber's terrible. Uber's inherent inherently evil. Amazon's evil. Break break them up. It's kind of I mean, it's frankly all a bit luddite. That sort of smash smash it all up and. Um, as I say in the book, like the best, the way through this thing is to work out how to govern it, how to steer it in the right direction, not to smash it all up. And there are other examples, aren't there? Like Ride Austin in Texas is essentially the same as Uber, but it's a platform that's owned and run by the drivers themselves. So, I mean, that's an example of a completely different origin story, but obviously it provides the same seamless customer experience, uh, but without all the kind of exploitation and, yeah. and aggregation of wealth at the top. So, James, I'm kind of intrigued because, you know, I, I, I have to say, you know, we, we spend our lives in this kind of stuff and it's very rare that I read a book that kind of sort of, you know, I kind of jumping up and down, punching my head. He certainly doesn't say that about my poetry books. No, no, I certainly don't say that. But let's not pull at that thread because I haven't got the time or indeed the breath left in my body to talk once more about your poetry, as we call it. <laughs> so, so my, I mean, reading it, James, it's, it's just such a tour de force of, of, of understanding and compassion for just about everybody that, you know, I just wonder, well, like, are you not tempted to just go back into politics and kind of go, you know, as but uh, stand and kind of go, look, I've got an idea here, you know, make me prime minister, I can solve this stuff because I would fucking vote for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's one. Um, I um, I'm not really. No, I'm I'm I sort of think I don't know. Maybe this is a very geeky answer. But I I feel like policy is more interesting than politics at the moment, and I think um, I think it's very interesting if you look in the past at some of these moments, like in the sort of late nineteenth century, you get these movements like the progressive movement in. Um, in America, where, that were not really party political, and they were more—they were almost above above politics, and they were—they were more about kind of how is capitalism changing, how do we understand that, and what what's the kind of big new ideas we need? And I I just think the time is ripe for that kind of movement. Um, so, ah, so so rather yeah. than trying sort of you know snag a party or create a new one that will get caught by politics, you change the the things they're talking about and the ideas so that they're kind of embraced by both the left and right in the way that you know. There's no political position that says um, sewers are a bad idea now. Yeah, and I think I sort of think the political argument's all got a bit meta. It's all it's all about how do you frame the argument, who mm. you're selling it to, who you're trying to persuade, as opposed to what is the actual substance. What's the actual substance of what you want to do with the government? And I just think that that bigger argument about what do we need the state for, how has that changed, is just really interesting, and that's where the value needs to be added. And in a way, if you get that right. Then, as with the progressive movement in America, it flows through into 
both the Republicans and the Democrats then adopted a lot of those sort of um, ideas. So I sort of think that's the place to put your effort. Do you think maybe you lost Michael Portillo when you slagged off train tracks? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I did say to him afterwards, you know, if you want to kind of have a chat about these ideas, I'd be happy. And he said, no, I spend my life on trains these days. So I think that's probably right. <laughs> the, uh, the line in your book that got me and made me think this is a guy I can talk to at length was smart rules make the game more competitive, not less. Hmm. And I think that really can be applied. You're, you're obviously talking at the time about how we regulate these big companies, but that just made me think this is a guy I want to spend a Christmas with. That is a line <laughs> I'm going to pull out Chat at over the Christmas. Yeah. Listen, guys, if we nail down the rules, then we can have more fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's right, though. You know, a good board game got has got good rules. Well, you talk about Monopoly. I, I didn't know the, the story tell right at the beginning that Monopoly was originally a game that had had two possible functions and one yeah. was to prove w- what could be done with cap- capitalism and, and one was the alternative and we all yeah, know which one there was won. a nice fluffy ver- there was a fluffy version and everyone liked the the evil capitalist version and that's the one that well it took off after a bloke stole the idea from the woman that invented it but um but yeah it was the evil it was the capitalist version that everyone kind <laughs> of liked and that's why we lead to the staggering statistic that the the 22 richest men in the world have more combined wealth than all the women in africa which blew my mind oh no obviously not in the sense that you hear it and you think well yeah sadly i can get that but it's a tragic tragic statistic that shows you exactly where we are as a global society but i think that one of the things that gives me hope you know in in reading your book and this conversation and and it's something that's sort of echoed in an in another episode we've done this series which is about the future of religion with with um, sanderson jones and he talked about how at times like this, this is the time where kind of new religions are born, you know, that seem cultish at the beginning or strange, but actually they become perfectly normal, you know. So, you know, we got rid of the Greek gods and then we kind of invented Christianity and Islam and all those kind of things. And and he's saying, like, he was almost saying, again, like this confusion, this kind of dissatisfaction, the way that, you know, lots of religions aren't delivering for people, you know, this is actually a very fertile time. I'm, you know, we're waiting to see what the new religions are, are going to be. And you're kind of almost saying the same thing from a policy and governance perspective. Mm. It's that the... The, the uncertainty we feel is the soil in which um, something quite exciting could could be born. Yeah, yeah, and something quite radical, and and something um, that's more than you know. It's, it's it's pretty clear that, as you said, the sort of managerial politics, the sort of managerial state, can't deal with this thing. Um, so, that, and it feels, I think, increasingly clear that that kind of incrementalism, like tweaking the taper rates in universal credit sort of solutions, aren't going to cut it. So, um, I think that that takes people to the need for bolder thinking um and as you say you often get kind of great art great music big ideas coming out of moments like this yeah well i wanted to just ask you very specifically about that uh, james what is the role for progressive rock in the future you imagine <laughs> yeah. yeah it played a big role in the past is it i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have to find new ways it's not enough to adapt the old ways i think the message is clear you need to move on mark it's called progressive rock the clue is in the name we've been at the forefront i think the birdie song by the tweets had more of an influence (laughs) on the progressive movement (laughs) than prog rock we always end the podcast with advice for for the listener i think this week it's clear buy the book read the book because it does make you feel better and you've sort of touched on this earlier but it'd be a nice sort of point to end on i think the idea that writing the book has genuinely helped you and the point of this podcast and it's certainly what i've found from 
working with Mark and Ed is that engaging with these problems rather than running away from them is in itself empowering and feeling empowered about the future is what makes you happier and makes you feel better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think actually I've really found um, slightly surprisingly reading about the history of these ideas is is really um, strangely uplifting because you see how bad things have been before, which makes you feel a bit better about how bad they are now. But um, but particularly the, the great thing is if you just sit down and read what people said about all the things we now take for granted and read about um, what people said about free education or public sewers or economic regulation or the welfare state um, or universal suffrage. My first Edinburgh show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, people got these things really wrong. <laughs> exactly. And now they're accepted as common sense. So. It's a joke you're trying to make there is that people were bad about, were, were criticised your first Edinburgh show and it came out to be known as a work of genius, John. Is that what you're saying? Uh, not a work of genius, but certainly something that as a society I think we should be grateful for and I think we should look back on as, you know, certainly part of the path to a better future. We're certainly grateful that you're not doing it anymore. I'm, cer- I'm certainly not saying Spatula Pad was the best show I ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, James, uh, I, I just want to thank you, A, for taking the time to be with us to record this, but but just genuinely for writing the book, uh, as we've said a number of times, that it's one of those books that, strangely, by engaging more deeply with the stuff, you just actually feel more optimistic. And, you know, in the times like this, that is a, that is a gift that um, I think all of us could benefit from. So, so you know, everybody, if you haven't already, immediately go and download or, or buy a physical copy of End State. Nine Ways Society is Broken, How We Fix It by James Plunkett. But thank you, James. It's 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 a genuine honour to read your work. And and the thing I love about it is it's it's a, it's a cracking good read as well. It's not just you know good ideas. It's really beautifully and eloquently written. And you've been a beautiful and eloquent guest as well. So thank you so very much. Thanks very much. Pleasure. So there we go. That was James Plunkett, a, a wonderful interview, touching on some very uh, some of the subjects that we've sort of touched on briefly in this podcast before, but really going down. And and we would all say the book itself really worth getting into. It's it's what we want this podcast to be. It's inspiring. It doesn't shy away from the difficult questions, and it seeks to answer them with actual facts and changes that might work. <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the things I loved about it the most, and indeed, and his interview was that you know he kind of expresses that sort of helplessness and complicitness we kind of all feel with you know the current system. It's like, oh, I don't like it, but I'm kind of stuck in it, and I don't know what to do with it. And he and he kind of untangles all that and goes, well, actually, there's just a bunch of stuff that's is going to change, and you can feel confident that it is going to change, and and there's a, there's a route out of this, and and times like this, you know, that's a particularly wonderful reading it's and it's not a, a pollyanna-ish view it's very well researched and very well um laid out so that i think you know i, I would des- definitely recommend it to anybody really it really i mean cheered me up and you know mine and his job is to kind of do what he does in the book so the fact that it kind of worked for us i think is a testament to anybody who likes this podcast i think would absolutely adore that book mm. and again, i think it just gives you the courage and confidence to be radical doesn't it just demonstrating so eloquently and repeatedly how it's all been done so many times before that you know that it is actually possible to fix a lot of these things and make the system work for a, a far greater number of people if not quite everyone and it's never beyond the realms of possibility to be able to do that uh, and i think in the current context where there's clearly a sort of public appetite for change then you know that's got to sort of strike a chord with folk mm, and i'll definitely recommend uh, um joe lysett's the new podcast joe lysett and the future North with james plunkett oh, i mean in fairness i would recommend that as well 
Mm. Um, and if they're looking for guests, I'm happy to come on and talk about my time working with two other people who worked in the industry. <laughs> um, if you want to ask Mark and Ed anything spurious, flippant, rude, um, to lighten the tone of some of our chats, which are at times, frankly, too interesting, um, then keep them coming in via the usual channels. And we end, as we usually do, with the confessional booth. Um, the Earthly Sins Confessional Booth, and I'll hand over to you, Ed, uh, for this week's confession. Exactly. Keep the confessions coming in. Well, I mean, we've got a few that came in. Uh, so uh, Lois Chaff, which I'm assuming is one of those sort of Spoonerism-type uh, Twitter monikers, said, I pass on birthday and Christmas presents I don't like to other family members. I just have to try and remember who gave it to me in the first place. Has anyone mm. done that? You mm. foisted on unwanted yeah, gift. We- I haven't done it because I'm I'm too far the other way to be honest, and I know people feel bad about that. But I am awful for keeping really crap gifts for all eternity. I've still got every Christmas card pretty much that I've ever been given in a box somewhere because it feels so callous to bin them or recycle mm. them. So I would say, Lois, don't feel too bad because at least you're you know you're giving them to someone who might want to use them again. Whereas mm. I just hoard this crap in my loft. Also, I think, Lois, what we should say is that if you do know anybody who do, you know does want to pass on their crappy Christmas presents, and they've got a willing home in 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 the house of John Wilson, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and, then, and, uh, and then Mia confessed. She said, "I'm a cleaner at a high school, and sometimes I can't be asked to take a separate bin around, so I put all the recycling in with the rubbish." Oh, Mia Culpa. Mia Culpa. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But my favourite, actually. Um, Listeners might recall uh, Padre Pete from Bristol confessing uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, despite being a kind of public vegan, uh, to buying, you know, the out-of-date Scotch eggs in the supermarket and then scarfing them across the road before going back and lying to his girlfriend. Uh, And obviously we mentioned it, but we obviously mentioned it with his name. So he wrote in saying, he goes, well, gents, thank you for hearing my confession. He goes, perhaps naively. I had the image of a digital confessional booth with you three playing the part of a befrocked, tight-lipped old geezer on the other side of a screen slide. And what I seem to have landed is a megaphone receiver. (laughs) Embarrassingly, what feels like the entirety of the activist community of Bristol has been in touch about my Scotch egg fetish. (laughs) On the plus side, a quick tell-all with my other half has revealed that she's been scarfing meat on the slide too when she goes out for meals. And that absolutely doesn't count as food waste prevention. So naturally, I've claimed that as a win. Um, and he's just signed off. He goes, I may or may not be Pete from Bristol. You see, you <laughs> see, the truth is always best. That's led to yeah. a beautiful conversation with his beloved. They've, they've realized that they're both flawed people who lie to each other. And therefore, they're <laughs> destined to be together. <laughs> so Mark's, Mark's secret to relationship success. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Pete. I mean, it speaks to... It speaks to what this podcast is here for, that we need more people to be getting involved. The fact that Pete from Bristol instantly means that everyone on what you describe as the activist community of Bristol knowing who you are suggests there are not enough people from Bristol getting involved and not enough Pete's in the activist community. (laughs) So if there were more people fighting the good fight, then that could have been any one of 50 Pete's from Bristol. I would suggest that it's probably the one whose farts stink of egg. That's probably what's outed you there, Pete. (laughs) So we will be back next week uh, with a wonderful episode where we'll be speaking to Jane Davidson, uh, former Welsh Environment Minister. That will be the future of future generations. So stay tuned for that. And do keep in your uh, earthly confessions and your trivial questions for Mark and Ed. And here's how you reach us. 
you can reach us by email at hello at john and the future notes.com that's hello at john j-o-n and the future notes all one word dot com we have our own show twitter account which is at j and the f and of course you can reach us individually on twitter too i am at ron richardson john richardson with the first letter swapped around that's what i've done there and you can reach ed and mark at the following I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Good luck, all of you. Just, I tell you what, you guys, just sit still, the pair of you. Just don't go anywhere. <laughs> don't move house. Don't fly to Norway for no fucking people. Just sit still, get some sleep, and I will see you next week. All right. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, Take Dad. Care. <laughs> 